0: Well, the repeating refrain this morning is last time, the last time that we will have to worship in this room, (laughs) that we get to worship in this room. And uh, somebody remind me, because at the end of the service today, I thought it was a great idea that that we just pray our prayer of thanksgiving, because truly, it has been a blessing. I mean, we were a congregation that had no home, and this place, space became home to us. Um, if you're visiting with us, let me explain that this is the last time we worship in this building because we've purchased the large sanctuary that's to my right, the A-frame building over there, and we're in the process of, of, of renovating that and of making it ready for, um, for worship. Next Sunday, we will be there, and it's very exciting. If you've rented an apartment for very long and then bought a house, you know the joy of home ownership. Well, it's very similar when it comes to the owning of your own church building. Twelve years we have rented, and now we'll begin a life in our own space. With its own challenges, it won't be perfect. There are giants in that land as well. There are things we will have to encounter. Most of all, we will carry each other there, which means that there will be conflicts, right? And we'll have disagreements, and we will dispute things, and different values will rise their ugly heads at times, or their different heads, and we'll have to negotiate how to love each other through all those things, which is why I felt it very appropriate, just felt led to really focus in on that first John passage that Elena so, so, read, uh, so well read a few moments ago. Um, you don't have the pew Bibles, like Elena said. We'll, we'll be getting those next week. They're over there in our pews waiting for us. The um, Alethea and the Vineyard are both struggling with how to use these pews, <laughs> which I find really funny that they've you know thrown off, thrown off all those old conventions and, and now here they are sitting in pews again. So. But pray for them and pray that we would know how to love Uh, we've been pretty good at loving as renters. May we also be able to love as owners. See, it's easy to to say, oh, now it's our building, right? (laughs) Now let me tell you what's going on. So, and I'm not going to say who, but there are, there is at least one vineyard member among us. So just be careful what you say, because, you know, um, good get back to Pastor Mike. So, First John is a, an incredible letter, somewhat intimidating. I don't know about you, but when I first read as a young Christian, I was intimidated because, basically, that that whole passage about if we go on sinning, you know, we're we're not we're not you know, if we say we you know that we're that we're Christians and we go on sinning, we're we're lying to ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves. Uh, in that that passage is intimidating because it seems to indicate that we somehow have to achieve sinlessness in order to be a follower of Christ, which, of course, flies in the face of our theology. And it even flies in the face of John's theology. If You, you know probably the familiar verses, but let me remind you. First John 1, 8, and 9, if you haven't memorized them, you should. This is one of those you should really memorize. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John understands. If we don't think we've sinned, we've deceived ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John knows that it's not that we don't, we are somehow to not sin, but it is the, it's the willingness to go on sinning unchecked, the, the, desire, the desire not to change, to simply remain as we are and think that somehow that's acceptable to God. That is what John says is a falsehood. It's a lie. And we, we're not following Christ in that manner. As a matter of fact, the whole book of First John is really a study of the three tests to whether or not you're a true believer. The three tests. And these themes sort of run around and cross over each other and connect all throughout First John. Let me just kind of give them to you really quickly. The first part's a little heady, but then I'll get to some really practical stuff in a moment. But the three tests are simply this. First of all, do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If we do not believe that Christ is the Son of God, we are not a Christian. Now, John was speaking to a real practical problem he had in the first century church that he's preaching to and teaching and sharing with, and that is these false teachers. John says, they came out from among us, but they were not of us. They looked like us, but they preached a different gospel. They didn't believe that Jesus was truly Human, that he was 100% human and also 100% divine. That he was God, the son, come to earth, taking on our humanity, living a perfect life, dying upon the cross, an atoning death, a propitiation, that big word for our sins, to atone for our sins and then raised to new life. As David said, we're in the Easter season and raised to new life on the third day. So the first test John will say over and over again is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 1 John 4.15 is a great verse to look at if you wanted to see that that point made out really clearly. The second thing that that the test that John will say, again, throughout the book of 1 John, is the test of whether or not you're truly a Christian is are you pursuing a righteous life? Are you pursuing a righteous life? Don't go on sinning, which I alluded to a moment ago. Don't go on sinning. Don't just simply accept your sin and think it's of not, no consequence. There is a tendency in the church, in the evangelical church, to so emphasize the grace of God and the sinfulness of man that it's all by grace, which we know it is. We, we don't receive our salvation on any merit, on any work, on any righteousness of our own part. And yet, Paul goes on to say, it's just, you know, we're, we're justified by faith for good works which God has foreordained for us to walk in. There is a, a righteous way to live. It's why we don't discard the Old Testament. It's why we still say the Decalogue during Advent and, and Lent, because we, we still want to pursue the law of God as, as a means, as a, as a way of holy life. Not that we can do it by ourselves. Of course not. We need the Spirit to work in us, but we seek a holy life. So the second test is, is just are we seeking a righteous life. And he will say that over and over again throughout the gospel. Again, that 1 John 1, 8, and 9 I, I, I talked to you about. So I was at a funeral for a friend's dad last Saturday before I came back to preach on Sunday. And, and this man, David Eldridge, my friend Mark's father, uh, was truly a righteous man. I mean, he, he had a joy about him that um, was unmistakable. He, he was a lawyer, but as my friend Mark said, he, he broke all the rules of lawyers. And, and we know some righteous lawyers. Um, but he said he, he just, it was just a joy about him and there was a generosity about him. He, he just, he gave. And, and, and it was a sense in which when you met him, you didn't feel judged by him, but you felt loved and received by him. And, that was expressed by his children and his grandchildren. And that's, that's something to put forward. That's, that's a, 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 a someone who's pursuing a righteous life. And, and that desire should be within us. To Yes, we are sinners saved by grace. But we desire in the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the cross of Christ, because of his resurrection, we desire to live a holy, righteous life. It's that hard, difficult part of the Christian walk, I think, for people. You see, the problem is that, you know, like, likely, you know, me and Mary McCready back there aren't struggling with the same sins. Maybe we are, but probably not. And my tendency as a human is to have a lot of grace and mercy when it comes to the sins I'm struggling with, but to have very little grace and mercy with the sins that Mary's struggling with. But but yet we're called, it's not... a You know, John is not saying the test is look at other people, whether they're pursuing a righteous life. It's look within, look at yourself. Are you seeking to live a righteous life? The third, we'll get into that completely, but the third test is what we really want to focus in on today. The third test, John says, is do we have genuine love for one another? And that's where we want to sort of make camp today and think about uh, a little more deeply do we have a genuine love, and he contrasts love with hatred. He uses Cain. I always want to go, "Whoa, John, that's a little extreme you know It's like, are you don't be like Cain, who killed his brother? you know and if you know that story, Cain was jealous of Abel because Abel's this is in the very first part of the Bible in Genesis Cain is, is jealous of Abel because Abel's sacrifice is offered and and acceptable to God and Cain's is not and the scripture says that Cain was without excuse so Abel was a righteous man he was more righteous than Cain and Cain was jealous of it and out of that jealousy grew resentment and hatred and ultimately if you know the story if you don't know the story the first two brothers Cain kills Abel Literally, in the, in the Hebrew word, it would be he butchered him out of his hatred and out of his jealousy for him. So John, I think being a little overdramatic, says, don't be like Cain. Okay, got it. Don't be like Cain. But we're also reminded of Jesus' words about anger and anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is in jeopardy of judgment, Jesus says in the, great, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Do we have a genuine love for each other? Now, this is not liking people. This is not about having warm, fuzzy, emotional feelings. This is about loving action. And John makes it really clear. If you go back... I know you don't have the Pew Bibles, but if you had your Bibles with you, if you, knew you could look up there, you'd see that he says, let us not simply love in talk or word, but in action and deeds. Love is an action. If you've been married for any length of time, you know that love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Amen, Jody? Amen. Amen. She will be the first to tell you. There are times where she doesn't feel a lot of love for me. I can be pretty unlovely. And yet, their action—that desire, that, that decision to be, to continue being married to me—and I'm so thankful for that, babe. That you do that. That there is a sense in which that love is that action. It is that loving action towards other people. One of the things that John deals with here. Let me just sort of side note: lots of things. I, I really encourage you to, to to unpack the book of John. Don't be intimidated, like I was for so many years but really get into it. But one of the things that's really hard is that John talks about the world. And, and of course, John 3, 16 tells us that God so loved the world. And yet first John says that we're not to love the world. And to love the world is to be at enmity with God. And so how do you, how do you, how do you reconcile those two things? You know, one, on one sense, how do you reconcile that God loves the world? And yet at the same time, we're not to be like the world. What I what, what, what John is talking about when he says don't, don't love the world, don't love the world system. Don't love the, the, the fallen system of the world and be weary, I think, by implication of our own culture and how that system, that world system affects us. And let me just give you a practical example of that. Our culture teaches us you know, the, the Gatorade commercial, obey your thirst, right? Our, our culture, in a sense, t- teaches us that, that value, except instead of obey your thirst, it's obey your feelings. Do what you feel like doing. What you don't feel like doing, you don't have to do. I, I hope they're not teaching that in school. If you don't feel like doing your math homework, Bella La Canina, don't feel the need to do your homework, because I can guarantee you that probably Bella will not do her math homework. Right, Bella? Probably not, right? <laughs> Maybe Bella would. I don't know. Some of us would not for sure, right? Most of us, I'm certain. That, that sense of feeling. But if you think about the, 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 the world system, the way that the, the world operates is basically if you feel like doing something, you should be free to do it. And if you don't feel like doing it, you should be set. For, you should not have to. You should be excused. We talked in our Bible study on Tuesday night about that. Dallas Willard brings that out. But this is this is a a value that's sort of been uh, born into our culture, and if we're not careful, we operate under it, doing the things, even as believers in Christ, doing the things we feel like doing, and not doing the things we don't feel like doing. Feelings always change we base our life on our feelings, gosh, we ride a roller coaster. Sort of like riding a teenager roller coaster. Julie and I were were challenged as young parents of teenagers not to get on the roller coaster. Teenagers go up and down. Man, I like being a parent of young adults. (laughs) My daughter's here today. So you have, to, you have to, in John's epistles, you have to struggle with what is this world, loving the world, and, and not loving the world means. I think it has to do with the system. But it, but it, but it comes to, to bear on this idea of, of where our feelings play. And I think that is so essential as we consider the command, the test of the authenticity of our, our love and, and our being Christians by the fact that we, how do we love other people? Do we love them with a genuineness? Now, some people are easy to love. I'm not talking about the easy people. Not Mary Cor- Coriel. That's Mary Mary's easy to love. But, but there are lots of others of us that are not as easy to love. And yet the command is that we would love each other. There, I'm sure there are hard people for, to love Mary, too. I'm sorry. But, but, but do we, are we characterized by a love for each other? This is, this is the tough stuff. Now I could go on and speak for well, you guys know I could speak forever, just kind of, you know, ethereally, you know, about these kind of things and and the principles. But I want to to change a little bit and be very practical with you and say, so, okay, if 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 John says that we are to the, the dim, a test of our authenticity as Christians is that we, we have a love for each other, that we are learning to love. That's a, that's an active Love that we're learning to do—that it goes from here into the future. That we're trying to learn to love other people. That characterizes us. Then we need to get really practical about that. If, if no other time than in a time like this, in a time of huge transitions for us. And so I just want to share with you for a couple of minutes, and I've got a couple minutes left, just to share with you. Some practical ways that I think that I try to live out the discipline of loving other people in my life, and I believe it's a part of the DNA of servants of Christ. I've said these things before, but it's been a while, and so I want to remind you of them. For some of you, it'll be first time, but for a lot of you, it'll be reminders of the the, the practical disciplines. You see, I think that we get at loving other people not simply by saying, okay, act of the will, I'm going to love you but by practicing disciplines, ways that we can be involved in this active process that that brings about the discipline of love. This came painfully to my awareness this last week. I was with David and James, and we were meeting with somebody that I had never met before, and I naturally, as we ran to talk, he said something that offended me. And it, it was, in my mind... Asked at least James about this. I, it seemed to me as he was making presumptions about me and about servants of Christ. And part of me wanted to drop my napkin and walk out of the restaurant. To be frank with you. The feeling, I don't feel like being with this person right now. So luckily, I didn't do that, and I tried to handle it in a little healthier way. I want you to know I'm not preaching at you. I am preaching with you in this situation. I want you to know this is something that I struggle with and that the things I'm sharing here are things that I have to practice as disciplines if I'm going to obey the command to love others, as Jesus says. Well, the first, the first one then, let me just say, is to recognize that one of the barriers to my loving other people is my own busyness. You see, I was at a, it was a really busy week meeting with this guy. Probably should have put that off. We are in fact buying a building and trying to move in and there's lots of meetings going on around that. Our busyness oftentimes becomes an obstacle to loving people. The person in front of me is not near as important as the person that I'm needing to go be with. And so I get short with the cashier, I get short with the waitress or the checkout guy. No, I don't need help with my bags out to the car. You know, and all of a sudden there's a lack of love. So one of the things that I'm working difficult, with difficulty on is trying to eliminate busyness in my life. Really, really hard to do. But examining how much I try to accomplish and what the cost is of trying to accomplish it. Because if I, in my busyness, think I'm so important that I have to do all these things, that it that it becomes an excuse for not loving people, not caring for people well, then I've missed it, Jesus says. The test of true Christianity is not how much you accomplish. It's how well you love. So I want you to know I'm trying to practice that one. If you see me rushing and being too busy, feel free to say in a loving way, Alex, it seems to me that you're being a little over-busy because it will affect our ability to love people. The, other one, the next thing that, I, that I, 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 I draw to your attention is a, a word or phrase that we learned from Father Jim Hobby, now Bishop Jim Hobby, years ago, and it was the word of charitable assumption. Charitable assumption. In our legal system, you are innocent until proven guilty. But in the the court of public opinion, oftentimes we're guilty before unless proven innocent. Charitable assumption basically says, I am going to discipline myself to assume that you do not mean me harm by what you say. It is a difficult discipline to learn, but once you begin to master it, it will change the way you love people. Jody and I work on this with each other, not so much each other, because, well, we do work with each other, but we also help each other, because there are times where she'll say, this person said that to me, and I'll say, well, let's have charitable assumption, or she'll say to me, I'll say, this person said that, let's have charitable assumption, let's don't assume they meant to bring harm, but in fact, that what they're, they're, they don't realize that they've offended us. Again, I've had to use that with, with folks, people in the church, people that have left the church and said to me things that were at the first blush really personal. I'm leaving this church because you. You know that, that that's what I heard. Rather than having a charitable assumption, was I don't think this person is trying to harm me. I think I, I need to listen more. If if we could practice charitable assumption with each other, you guys. Um, it, it, it would transform our thinking. And again, this is, this is one of those disciplines. We're so easy to take offense. It's like driving, right? Everybody that cuts me off is trying to harm me. They're doing that intentionally. No, they're not. But I think that, right? They passed me on the wrong side. They cut me off. I think that they're some, they have a vendetta. Did I do something to them back there? I start thinking. I have this mental conversation in my head. Please tell me I'm not the only one, right? Right? I mean, some of you feel this way too that there is something personal that I've done to offend them, and therefore they're taking it out on me by their aggressive and charitable assumption. You know the reality is? Those people probably are oblivious to me. I'm not even a person, I'm just. A car obstacle in their way. Charitable assumptions. People are not out to hurt me or harm me in my relationships. Gosh, if you want to begin to truly live out the command to love one another, give it a try. Try it for 30 days. Money back guarantee. Sometimes, though... Terrible assumptions isn't enough. We, we, we try to assume that they, that they, they, you know, that they didn't mean us harm, and yet, the more we think about it, it seems that really they, there was something hurtful or cutting, or um, mean about it. And so, the next discipline that I've tried to learn and tried to teach in the congregation is to keep short accounts. The worst thing as a pastor, I can hear somebody say, Well, I haven't really spoken with my brother for four years. It's like, four years? Or that person did something to me two years ago. Because I realized that in that moment that there is, there is two years or four years or however length of time it is of resentment built up towards that person. Keeping short accounts. And I've practiced this with some of you. Going to you quickly, and you've practiced it with me too. I've seen it, you know, where we say. You know what? When you said that, it really hurt my feelings. You may not have meant to, charitable assumption, but, but it, it really hurt. I took it extremely personal when you said you fill in the blank. Now, Southerners are horrible about this. I realize not all of you are Southerners, but Southerners, let me tell you. Let me give you a little technique. Don't bury the lead, all right? Don't talk to somebody for 30 minutes, you know, about the weather and their grandkids and stuff. And then, by the way, oh, by the way, you really offended me. Don't do that to people. Don't bury the lead. If you got something to say that's hard, say it first. I learned that from Bill Hybels, the pastor at Willow Creek. If you got something hard to say, because otherwise they, people feel that, you know, like you made them vulnerable and then you zinged them, you know, tell them up front. Be Be, be frank. Again, with charitable assumption, I'm sure you didn't mean to. But when you said that, it really hurt me. Now, introverts, a little technique. I need to say something to you, Alex. I don't want you to say anything until I'm done. (laughs) I'm an extrovert. I want to defend my actions. We all do. You know, it's natural just say that to us or write us an email or, or, or send us a text message but you know it's better when you can say it face to face because then you, you've got all the nonverbals. verbals but, but, but I, I need to say something to you please don't say anything until I'm done and then share what it is you need to say I, this is extremely practical you guys this is exactly the way we learn to love others eliminate busyness Terrible assumptions, keep short accounts. You want to know how I'm learning to do this? I'm doing, trying to do these things. And these are things that I see manifesting in the congregation, and, and they bring life. You want to know why a servant seems like, you know, we just seems like we don't have a lot of conflict? Well, we, we try to have ter- terrible assumptions with each other, and we try to keep short accounts. It's amazing how saying, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, I've, I'm having to not look too closely at any of you because I'm thinking there are, there are specific examples that I could say that I won't because you wouldn't want me to. But, but I know there are times where I've, I've been offended or, you've, or I've offended you and we've needed to do that. And we need to practice these things with each other. Now the reality is that sometimes in those short accounts there, there is wrong and there is, there is pain, there is hurt. There's mean things said. And, of course, that brings us back to forgiveness. And practicing forgiveness, it comes right in line. Practicing forgiveness has everything to do with loving people. You're, you're, you're not going to love people who don't hurt you intentionally at times and for whom you need to say, I was hurt, please forgive me, or I hurt you, please forgive me, whatever it needs, whichever way it needs to run. For John, that brings him back to the recognition, and he says it right there in chapter three the recognition that that we love by laying down our lives, by laying down, we could say, our rights, um, by always being aware of how much we have been forgiven. Underneath all of these things, why charitable assumptions? Why short accounts? Why eliminating busyness? Because we recognize that that is we have been forgiven so very much through our Lord. How can we possibly hold on to these things and keep holding a person up and condemning them and allowing hatred to enter into our lives because We're we're not willing to lay down our rights and come to that person. He says it over and over and over again throughout his gospel. Little children, do not let us love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, at the end of the passage... John says that we are not condemned. We're not condemned because of the one who died for our offenses. By the one who was willing to lay down his life, his perfect life, in exchange for our imperfect lives. Who loved us enough to enter into the pain and suffering of this world and to bring about our forgiveness, and to, to reconcile us to God. If, if we have been forgiven so much, that becomes the power within us to forgive one another. I know it's real practical, and I know it's thick, and there's lots to learn in First John, and I, I, I encourage you to spend time just digging into it, learning it. We'll be back in First John next week in terms of a part of our epistle readings. But I, I, I want you to, to know that th- there will be challenges that you will need to remember that it's not just simply about getting our way. It's not just simply about rights and feelings. Those That's the world. That John reminds us to be weary of and to not love, to not buy into. But rather to set our minds and hearts to disciplines. To not be controlled by our feeling, but rather to be controlled by what we know to be right and true. That we're called to be in relationship with each other. I'm praying for you in this process. I pray you'll pray for me in this process. Be in prayer. We're going to be renting to a church. That's something we've never done. That's going to require charitable assumptions, (coughs) short accounts, eliminating busyness, and forgiveness. This is where the rubber meets the road. (laughs) The Lord will will work in us. He's given us his spirit. Our part is to practice the disciplines. His part is to empower us with his spirit. Are you with me? Have I lost you or made you fall asleep? I hope not. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this community of love and forgiveness, of terrible assumptions and short accounts. Oh, Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would just permeate this room, Lord. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know how they could possibly learn to forgive or know how possibly they could learn to love people that they don't like, Lord, we we pray that you you would remind each of us and remind them, Lord, that you say that if we ask these things in your name, you will do them in us. You long to do them in us, Lord. You long to remind us that we're not condemned and that, in in fact, we are your children, children of light, and that you are working us, your goodwill, to see us to completion. So, Father, we thank you for just reminding us of what you want us to be about. We pray your grace and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.